One of the most bizarre stories I have ever heard in my life was about a young married couple and both of their sets of parents. This is a true story. There was once a Christian young man and Christian young woman who met each other, were interested in each other, got to know each other, and eventually decided to get married. In the process of all of this, each of their sets of parents met one another and became friends, which can be a nice thing when your respective son and daughter are going to be married. However, in this situation, things got really sticky. You see, what happened was this. Let me see if I can explain this without confusing you. The young man's dad began to be attracted to the young woman's mom, and the young woman's dad began to be attracted to the young man's mom, and vice versa. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the parents divorced one another and married the other person. What that means is that the young man's dad married the young woman's mom, and the young woman's dad married the young man's mom. I'm getting confused and I'm telling the story. Think about the young couple in all of this. The young bride's mother-in-law became her stepmother and the young groom's mother-in-law became his stepmother and the same kind of thing was true for the father-in-laws who became stepfathers. After a while, the parents admitted that what they had done was wrong. They acknowledged that they should have stayed married to their original spouse. But now what should they do? Should they stay married? Or should they divorce and remarry back to the way things were in the first place? I know the seminary professor they went to for advice on their situation. In fact, I've had him for a few classes. But I'm not going to tell you what he said because I want to leave you in suspense and maybe that will keep you awake through the entire sermon. Life often presents us with some sticky situations. Sometimes they are related to business. Sometimes they are related to education. Sometimes they are related to sports. Sometimes they are related to marriage or parenting or other family relationships. And without a doubt, the ones that are most difficult to deal with are those situations involving human relationships. I'm sure the Apostle Paul experienced several of those kinds of situations throughout his life and ministry. In fact, one of those awkward, sticky situations is recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. We learn about it in the book that is called Philemon. Let's turn there together. If you're not already there, after First and Second Thessalonians is First and Second Timothy, then Titus, then the little letter Philemon right before the book of Hebrews. As you can see, if you are there, Philemon is a very short letter. In fact, this is the most personal and shortest of all Paul's letters. It only has 334 words in the Greek text. Let's set the background in our minds so we can understand and appreciate this short but powerful letter which the Lord guided into Holy Scripture. Philemon, the man to whom this letter was addressed, was a part of the church in Colossae. And of course, we have a letter in our New Testaments titled Colossians, written to the church at Colossae. 
It seems that the church of Colossae met in Philemon's house, which was not uncommon in the first century. House churches were, in fact, probably the norm. So the letter opens, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see there, in verse 2, Paul indicates that the church gathered in the house of Philemon, or Philemon's home. From this fact, we can assume, it's probably safe to assume, that Philemon was somewhat wealthy. After all, he had a house large enough for the church to meet in. Now, you know, don't picture a church of 300 people. That's probably not the case. But nonetheless, a a house large enough for the church together, whatever the size. And he also had slaves. One of his slaves, who was named Onesimus, ran away and tried to find refuge in the large metropolitan city of Rome. If you're going to run away, you try to run away far away to a big city where you can sort of get lost in the crowd. That's what Onesimus did. But while he was in Rome, of all things, he somehow came under the ministry of the apostle of Paul. Of course, this wasn't just happenstance. This was the providential work of God. While Onesimus was there in Rome... And under Paul's ministry, he gave his life to Christ. He became a Christian. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know how he heard the gospel. We don't know if it was the first time he heard the gospel or if he had heard it back in Colossae. We don't know. But he became a new creation in Christ. And as such, he now realized he had a problem. He knew, and rightfully so, by the way, he knew that he legally belonged to Philemon. He knew it was his responsibility to return to his master. So Paul encouraged him to return to Philemon. And Paul also wrote a letter to Philemon about the situation. It's safe to assume that Tychicus delivered this letter to Philemon when he delivered the letter to the Colossian church. We know that that man, Tychicus, was the one who delivered the Colossian letter. Safe to assume he delivered this one as well. The basic thrust of this letter, and you know, as you read through it, it does raise the question in your mind, why would God make sure that this letter be inspired and recorded in Holy Scripture? It's a question that sort of screams out from this little epistle. Why did God include this in the New Testament? The basic thrust of the letter is the priority of Christian love and forgiveness because God has forgiven us. It also gives us some valuable insights about how to handle a sticky sticky situation. After all, when we are in difficult circumstances, we want to handle them the right way. In fact, that's what makes it tough sometimes. Think about it. Those of us who know and love Christ want to honor the Lord in all our relationships and in every situation we find ourselves, in all, uh, in all decisions that we make in life, we want to handle things biblically. But it's not always easy to know exactly what it means to handle something biblically. What is the biblical response to be to this given situation? It's not always easy to know exactly how the Lord wants us to respond. 
And you can feel that tension in Paul's life as he pens this letter. He is encouraging Philemon to forgive Onesimus. As an apostle, Paul could have commanded Philemon to do this. But Paul didn't feel that was the best way to handle this sticky situation. Instead of commanding Philemon, he appealed to Philemon. He encouraged him and exhorted him and lovingly challenged him. But before we get to that, let's first deal with the issue of slavery because that may be a block in some people's minds, and understandably so. Because when we think about slavery in the first century Roman world, we probably think of what slavery was like in the history of our own country. And that's not really an exact parallel or an exact comparison. There were slaves in, first century, in the first century Roman world who were doctors, physicians. There were slaves who had a fairly high social standing. Nevertheless, they were slaves. It wasn't exactly the same parallel that we think about when we think about our history. Now, there certainly were some parallels because a slave was still a slave. He belonged to his master. He was to obey his master. So some things were the same. Not all things were exactly the same. But to help us think through this issue somewhat, back up with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3 to see what Paul had to say about slavery since Philemon was a part of this church, the Colossian church. Colossians chapter 3. It has been estimated by historians that maybe as much as one-third to one-half of the Roman population of the first century was composed of slaves. Some slaves of some kind. Therefore, it was significant for Paul to address this issue. He knew he had to address this issue in his letters. Also very significant in my mind is that Paul, when he addresses this issue doesn't try to overturn the social wrong of slavery. Slavery was obviously undesirable, but the purpose of the gospel is not to try to change all the outward problems in a society. The goal of the truth of God is to accomplish inward change in those who are properly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that sometimes when a person's heart is changed or when a number of people have changed hearts, those people affect change in society and in given situations. Certainly that's true. But understand that neither Jesus nor any of the apostles were social reformers. They did not see that as their mission. And we need to remember that. Our purpose, no matter how much we love and appreciate our country, our purpose is not to save America. You cannot find that in Scripture. Our, our purpose is not to change all the social problems in our nation. Yes, humanism is wrong. Yes, pornography is wrong. Yes, so many of the things shown on TV are wrong. But overturning social ills and sin in society is not really what the Christian life is all about. Here in these verses, Paul is not saying, in Colossians 3, he's not saying that slavery is the most desirable way for society to function but he realized God's plan for ministry. He accepted things the way they were, and he realized that God had not called him to overturn the social system of slavery and all of its problems. Instead, he addressed how a Christian should live in the midst of the society in which he finds himself. 
Another observation that is interesting to me is that while only four verses, now listen to this closely, only four verses are given for the family in the book of Colossians, four verses, there are five verses given to the topic of slaves and masters. So let me spell it out clearly. There are more verses in Colossians about slaves and masters than there are about husbands, wives, children, and parents. It's remarkable. I'm sure that part of the reason behind that was because of the situation involving Onesimus and his owner Philemon. I mean, think about this small church. Everybody in the church knew that Philemon had a slave who ran away. And think about the repercussions, the potential problems. Would other slaves in the church say, hey, he didn't got away with it. Maybe I should try to do it. Or, wrongly, would other slave owners say, I'm going to crack down on my slave or slaves to make sure they know who's the boss, which would have been a improper, an improper response for a Christian. So Paul could not leave this issue alone. He, he, he had to address it. This was a major issue in the church. So Paul deals with it somewhat thoroughly. One other observation before we look at what he says. It is shocking, if you stop to think about it, it's shocking that Paul would even address the slaves in the church. He addresses them in the letter. Just like he addresses parents, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, he addresses directly slaves, directly addresses them. And by doing so, he is recognizing them as people, not as things, not as property, not as tools, as people. So with that in mind, look at Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul says this, Bond servants may be better rendered slaves. And I know that all our English translations don't match here. But he's addressing the slaves in the church at Colossae. Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Obey is the basic exhortation here. And Paul says, not just when your master is looking. Obey from the heart. The phrase singleness of heart here speaks of a heart that is so true that it will bear God's scrutiny. In other words, it is God that you are seeking to please. He is the one who is assessing your life. He is the one examining you. So you need to obey with singleness of heart. Verse 23 And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. This, for many Christians, is their favorite verse. There are many Christians who would say, this is my favorite verse of Scripture. Whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. But we often fail to realize that when we quote this verse, that it was originally addressed to slaves. Think about that. This verse was addressed to slaves. But the principle is universal. Whatever we do, we do as unto the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Those are fabulous words of encouragement. Think about it. Paul is writing these words to slaves. He says, listen, someday the Lord will balance the scale. He sees all. He knows all. He will reward you. So don't let unfair treatment condition your behavior because you don't really serve your master. Ultimately, you serve Christ. By the way, this principle is valid in marriage also. In other words, you don't treat your spouse 
in accordance with how you think your spouse is treating you. It's not like, well, if she's nice to me, I'll be nice to her. You know, if he's good to me, I'll... No, no. You, you don't let any unfair treatment or what you perceive to be unfair treatment condition your behavior because you are serving, ultimately, the Lord Christ. The slaves might be treated as property or as tools by their earthly masters, but Paul here tells them, listen, God sees you as an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Verse 25 but, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, Paul is saying, don't think that because you're a Christian, you don't have to obey your master. And it would be easy for a Christian to grab hold of that wrong perspective. Hey, I'm a Christian now. This, this earthly master, he, what does he matter? I serve Jesus. He's the only one I have to obey, so I don't care about this earthly master. Paul says, no, no, no. The Christian slave was not to presume on his Christianity as a justification for disobedience. By the way, interesting insight. This this phrase here at the end of verse 25 (coughs) is directed toward the slave here in this passage. But in Ephesians, as we'll look at in a moment, it's directed toward the masters. So it applies to both. He who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partiality. It doesn't matter to the Lord if you're a slave or you're a master. He's going to judge you righteously, fairly, with equity. And then chapter 4 wraps up this section. We have a chapter break here, a little unfortunate chapter break. Masters, give your slaves, your bondservants, what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul basically says, Masters, You need to live by the golden rule with your slaves. And what does the golden rule do unto them as you would want God to do unto you? Treat them the way you would want the Lord to treat you as your master. So you can see Paul realized how important it was to address this issue. And this isn't the only letter where he does that. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, as I mentioned just a moment ago. So go back again a couple little letters to Ephesians chapter 6. And notice that he addresses the issue once again. Paul addresses slavery in Ephesians 6. Again, I want to emphasize, he is not saying that it is the most desirable way for a society to function, but neither was he on a crusade to change it. He didn't feel the need to try to change it. Instead, he is instructing believers how to live in the midst of a less-than-perfect system. There were, as I mentioned earlier, literally millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. So it would have been unconscionable for this issue not to be addressed in the church. Churches, think about this, churches in the first century were composed of Christians, some of whom were slaves and some who were masters. Maybe not necessarily masters of the same slaves in that church, but the church was composed of people, some of whom were slaves and some of whom were masters. The issue had to be addressed. So let's see, Paul says very similar to what he said in Colossians. So as we read through these verses, in addition to seeing what he had to say about slaves and masters, just by way of application, try to sort of orient your mind to realize that there are valid principles here for employees and employers also. Because there's a similar, though not identical, relationship. So think applicationally in that way as we work our way through this. If you are an employee, 
you work for someone or you are an employer, that you have people who work for you, think through that grid. The sad fact is Christians can sometimes be the laziest and worst employees to have. I know of some Christian bosses, and it pains me to have to say this, but I understand it. I know of some Christian bosses who will not even hire Christians because they've had so many Christians who were lazy and poor employees and who basically presumed on their relationship with their Christian boss, thinking, hey, since we're both Christians, you know, he'll understand if I don't really work that hard or give my best, he'll, he'll let it slide. I've told the story in the past about when I was a teenager, 16 or 17 years old, working at an electrical plant in Clearwater, Florida. Nearby was a Bible college, and this electrical plant would hire part-time help from the school. And I still can remember this one guy in particular who carried his Bible, a little New Testament. He carried it in his back pocket, brought it to work, and occasionally at breaks and so forth, he would take it out and read it, and he would talk to others about the Lord. He's very open, very open and forward about his faith in Christ. But this guy would show up late to work regularly. Sometimes he wouldn't show up at all. He just didn't come in, and he didn't call. He didn't call in to let the boss know that he was, was not going to make it. Eventually, he was fired. I thought at the time, and still think back on that, what, what a terrible testimony and reputation to have as a Christian. And frankly, it made it difficult for those of us at the plant who were also Christians. We had to live with that. I mean, people looked at us through that grid. Are you like him? You know, very outspoken about this Jesus thing, but a poor worker. According to the principles here in Ephesians 6, that kind of thing should never happen with a Christian employee. This area of our lives is extremely important. Christianity knows nothing of a division between sacred and secular. The Bible Bible allows no such distinction. Everything a Christian does should be for the glory of God. So, notice verse 5. Bond servants against slaves. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. The basic exhortation here is do what you're asked to do. That's true if you happen to be a slave or if you're an employee. Do what you're asked to do. It's simple enough. Do what the person over you asks you to do. But it doesn't stop there. After this basic injunction, Paul goes on to add six phrases to show the kind of obedience That should characterize a Christian. How should a Christian obey his master? How should should a, a first century Christian slave obey his master? Or to bring it into our time, how should a 21st century Christian obey his boss? Six ways are described here. Number one, with respect and fear. Number two, in sincerity of heart. Number three, as unto Christ. Number four, with consistency. Five, with inner motivation. And six, wholeheartedly. Those are the six sort of superlatives that Paul attaches to the basic injunction of obedience. Verse 5 says, obey with respect and fear. That is, you don't do what you're asked to do grudgingly. You don't do it with a bad attitude. You carry out your duty with respect for the person who is over you and with fear of consequences if you don't. The attitude is just as important to God as the actions. Obeying our superiors without the proper attitude is really just hypocrisy. 
So the first qualifying phrase here is, is one that addresses our attitude with respect and fear. The next phrase in verse 5 says, in singleness of heart, or some translations, in sincerity of heart. Once again, the attitude is the key issue that the Lord is going after in this text. This phrase speaks of a heart that is so true, same phrase as Colossians, that it bears God's scrutiny. After all, the Lord is really every Christian's master. Think about that. There's a sense in which it doesn't really matter if, a, if you're a slave or not a slave because every Christian has a master. And our master is the Lord. Paul alluded to this here in verse 5 when he says, Obey those who are your master's according to the flesh. He adds that phrase because it's his way of saying, listen, you, you may have an earthly master and you need to obey him and need to obey him with the right attitude, but you need to look beyond him and obey your spiritual heavenly master. That's the issue. And in fact, he is encouraging the slave here to, say, to, to see this perspective. By submitting to your master or Take it into the employee realm. By submitting to your boss, your superior, you are actually submitting to the Lord. In fact, the last phrase in verse 5 says, as unto Christ. Every Christian should be determined to be a faithful employee, if you are an employee, as an expression of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That is the divine perspective, the vertical perspective that every Christian should have concerning every facet of life. Paul continually introduces this kind of perspective into every relationship in which a Christian is involved. This is, the, this is the vertical perspective we are to have in relation to every facet of life. You know 1 Corinthians 10.31. You know it. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Oh, what a difference it makes when we have that kind of perspective on life. Paul continues to expand his thought in verse 6. He says to these slaves, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, let me paraphrase it. Don't just do what you're supposed to do only when your master is looking. Or let me bring it into our culture. Don't just do what you're supposed to do only when your boss is looking. Consistently do what is right. The term men pleasers here in this verse Really interesting term in the original. It describes someone who doesn't take God into account and therefore his only goal is to please people. It's a people-pleasing type of person. That kind of perspective is the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. An eye-service, men-pleasing perspective of life is totally horizontal. God never enters the thought of such a person. Even as a Christian... I hope you understand that even as believers, we can sometimes live as practical atheists. We can live our lives without ever thinking what, what God would want of us in a given situation. Beloved, that is a low level of existence for a child of God. No Christian should ever lower himself or herself to live life that way. The quality of our work, the excellence of our work, shouldn't depend on whether or not our superior is looking over our shoulder. We should maintain a consistent level of excellence because our motivation is not merely external, it's internal. That's what the end of verse 6 is talking about when it says, doing the will of God from the heart. That is internal spiritual motivation as opposed to the external motivation of just getting in good with the boss. 
And verse 7 continues to exhort wholeheartedness. Verse 7 says, With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. William Barclay said this, quote, The conviction of the Christian workman is that every single per- piece of work he produces must be good enough to show God. End quote. That's a powerful statement and a powerful incentive. This is the same thought we saw earlier. It's sort of a summary of the entire thrust of the passage. As Christians, our perspective should be that we are rendering service to the Lord and not to men. And the clincher is verse 8. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Those are fabulous words of encouragement. Someday the Lord will balance the scales. So don't let unfair treatment condition your behavior. Beloved, listen to that. Hear that. That applies in every relationship you and I have. Marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, friendships, family relationships, uh, work relationships, every relationship. Don't let unfair treatment condition your behavior. You are not doing what you are doing in those relationships just for people. You are doing it unto the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Those words are tremendously encouraging to those who are in difficult circumstances of employment or other relationships or situations where you have someone who is not treating you fairly, properly. And listen, can you imagine how much these words would have meant to the slaves of that day? To hear Paul say to the slave, you are serving Christ. And if you serve Christ well, he will reward you. Can't imagine that. Just what that would have meant to a Christian slave. They may have been treated as property or as tools by their earthly masters, but God would treat them as heirs. And of course, there's an application for us today. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you don't have to obey your superior if you have, you're in a relationship of, uh, of work where you have a superior. As Christians, we're not to presume on our Christianity as a justification for disobedience. In fact, just the opposite should be true. We should be more, more exemplary. And the section closes with an exhortation to masters in verse 9. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, masters, you need to treat those under you like you would want them to treat you if the tables were turned. Once again, this is the golden rule of of master-slave relationships, employee-employer relationships. Bosses, treat those under you the way you would want them to treat you if the tables were turned. But even more than that, treat those under you the way your master, Jesus Christ, treats you. After all, you are nothing more than a servant with a master. Doesn't matter what your position is, what my position is, doesn't matter how high you rise in the social scale, doesn't matter if you become president of the United States one day, you're nothing, if you're a Christian, you're nothing more than a servant with a master. Jesus Christ is the exemplary master. And then there's that statement incredible statement at the end, there's no partiality with him. Literally, it says this. Literally in the Greek text, there is no lifting up the face with him. 
In other words, he doesn't lift someone's face to look at the person to see who someone is before he decides how to treat him or her. He doesn't do that. That's a penetrating thought. And it's supposed to be, especially for all those who are bosses in one way or another, superiors. The point is, bosses treat your employees fairly. You know, many of us spend a whole lot of hours at our place of employment. And God's counsel to us is this. Because we are in Christ, that should affect the kind of employee or employer we are. After all, there's more at stake here than just your reputation. Jesus' reputation is at stake. And that's what Paul wanted Philemon and Onesimus to understand when he wrote about their situation. So with that in mind, let's go back to Philemon and briefly look at what he had to say about that situation. Back past 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. After the introduction in verses 1 through 3, Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Now understand something. Paul is not buttering up Philemon when he says this. Philemon was a genuine and dear brother to Paul. He says to him back in verse 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. And let me tell you something. Paul Paul didn't say that kind of thing unless it were true. He wouldn't lie and say, I'm praying for you in my prayers if he wasn't praying for it. So he was praying for it. This was a man that meant a great deal to him. So Paul begins by reaffirming their relationship. And then he says in verse 8, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting... And remember, as an apostle, Paul had that authority. He says, Yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable profitable to you and to me. This, of course, is the central purpose of the letter. Paul wrote to appeal to Philemon not to punish or kill Onesimus, which Philemon could have legally done. He could have done that, legally. Verse 12, he says, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent... I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be done by compulsion, as it were, but voluntarily. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see, what Paul is trying to do here is to focus Philemon's thoughts on what God accomplished through this. Yes, Onesimus ran away, and that was wrong. We we cannot justify that. Don't try to in your mind. It was wrong. Paul doesn't excuse it. But he does say that God used the situation to bring Onesimus to faith in Christ. In verse 16, Paul refers to Onesimus as a beloved brother. 
He doesn't refer to him as a runaway slave. You know why? Because Christ makes sure that our past is a past that's past. This is a beautiful illustration of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have become. So Onesimus was a new creation. Verse 17, Paul says, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, and that was likely, by the way, it's likely that when he ran away, he took stuff. And even if he didn't take stuff, being gone would have cost Philemon. So if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul here again is not just blowing smoke. He's not trying to, you know, pat him on the back and sort of, you know, uh, puff him up. He is, he is expressing his genuine confidence in this man, Philemon. He knew him. He considered him a, a precious brother in the Lord. And he's saying, I know what your legal rights are. Your legal rights are you could punish him severely, you could kill him. But he's a brother now. And I'm asking you to forgive him. And I'm confident because I know you, I know your heart for the Lord, that you'll do even more than what I'm asking here. By the way, as a little side note, what Paul says here about paying for the wrongs of Onesimus is a beautiful illustration of what Christ has done for us. The Lord Jesus Christ receives us to himself, and he tells the Father, as it were, whatever wrong they have done, I've paid for it. It's on my account. That's what Paul was saying to Philemon. I'll pay for all the wrongs of Onesimus. Anything he took from you or anything he cost you, I'll pay for it. Do you wonder what ended up happening in this sticky situation? Of course, we have this letter and it tells Paul's appeal to Philemon about Onesimus, but we're not told the end of the story here. We we don't know from what we have here how it all turned out. And we don't know for sure, but we may have a clue we may have an insight as to what happened. You see, a letter has been discovered that was written by Ignatius, the pastor of the Smyrna church, after the turn of the first century. He wrote the letter to the church in Colossae. Now remember, that's the same church where Philemon was, Onesimus was, the church that met in his house. He writes a letter to the church in Colossae, and in the letter he says this, direct quote, Since then, in the name of God... I received your entire congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your pastor. Your pastor. Now, do we know with absolute certainty that this Onesimus that that Ignatius refers to is this Onesimus of Philemon? No, but Onesimus was not a very common name. So it's a very distinct possibility that he is referring to the same man. If he is referring to the same man, think about this. Onesimus eventually became the pastor of the Colossian church. It's a great ending to the story, if that's indeed what happened. Let me, think of, let me state it more personally. Onesimus, if this is the same man, Onesimus became Philemon's pastor. Think about that one. 
Only the Lord could ever do that. And that's the main thing that I want us to take with us by way of application when it comes to the sticky situations that we, that we face in life. The Lord, can, the Lord can work them out. That doesn't mean that every difficult situation we get involved in will automatically turn out peaches and cream and, you know, be a bed of roses. After all, think about this. Paul got caught in the middle of a hornet's nest when he went to Jerusalem, and that's why he was in prison when he wrote this letter. He refers to that fact. So I'm not implying when I say, hey, we, we, do, we try to honor the Lord and leave it to Him to work out. I'm not implying that it all turns out, you know, just as a, as a bed of roses and everything's hunky-dory. No. Every difficult situation doesn't turn out the way we would like. But we need to do what we know from Scripture, the best we can determine, the Lord would want us to do, and then leave it to Him and remember He's in control. And then we need to trust Him with the outcome from there. By the way, do you remember that story I told you back at the beginning of the message? I never did tell you what the seminary professor told those two couples to do. One of these days I may tell you. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. You thought I was kidding. I may tell you. Let's close. Father, when we read this brief letter, it's really quite amazing if we, if we stop to consider it that you would include such a letter in the canon of Scripture. That you would include this very personal letter from Paul to Philemon and that you would make sure that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit as Paul wrote it, and then preserved and placed in your Word. You obviously have a reason for that. So we would do well to digest the contents of this letter. We would do well to think through the implications in the first century and for our own lives here in the 21st century. There are some obvious things that we see. We see the importance of Love and forgiveness in the body of Christ as Paul appealed to Philemon to grant that to Onesimus. We see the importance of carrying out our obligations in life even if we're in unfair circumstances, difficult circumstances, as was the case with Onesimus. He knew he had to go back. He knew it was right to go back. Paul said it was right for him to go back. Paul sent him back. That's not something that sits well with us as 21st century Americans. We don't tend to think that way naturally. But that is what is right. So help us to think clearly through the principles that flow out of this inspired letter of Holy Scripture. Thank you for including it. Thank you for what we can learn from it, what we can glean from it. And may the principles that we've talked about in this message of of not only master-slave relationships, but employee-employer relationships be something that is transforming in our thinking in our hearts, and in our lives. And above all, may we do whatever we do heartily as unto Christ, always focused on the fact that we're serving Him, we're living for Him. He is the one we seek to please in every relationship, in every situation, every circumstance. May our eyes be focused on Him in whose name we pray. Amen.